Dr. Valper and the Two Minute Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. He's returned from vacation to make his weekly Monday appearance, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week that he is not on vacation in the Outer Banks, I guess, of one of the Carolinas, wherever those Outer Banks are, uh, as he does every week that he's not in the Outer Banks, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball of particular note this week. The Minnesota Twins have not only the best record in the American League Central, but all of the American League. Uh, interestingly, in addition to having the best win percentage in the American League, they also have the worst projected rest of season win projection in the American League. So they have the best record now, but they are projected for the rest of the season to have the worst record in the American League. How are those two things possible? You can maybe have some theories, but how are they possible? And uh, how ought that to inform the Twins' decisions going forward? I asked Dave Cameron that. Uh, Some research by Jeff Zimmerman appears to reveal that there is a relationship between velocity and home run allowance as the former goes up. The ladder goes down, on a, even even on a per-batted ball uh, basis. I asked Dave Cameron about that, what that might reveal about certain pitchers we've seen who have maintained peripherals, like C.C. Uh, C. Sabathia, like Tim Linscombe, but who uh, have allowed more runs in recent years. And finally, uh, more work by, by Jeff Zimmerman of the, of the Great Plains. Jeff Zimmerman uh, had wrote at uh, Hardball Times last week about the defensive spectrum. He presents a possibility of uh, defensive adjustments that that conspire to produce a smaller range uh, between the DH on the very one end of it and the uh, shortstop on the other. I asked Dave Cameron about that, what the implications might be for how we calculate wins above replacement, etc. Uh, I also asked Dave Cameron if uh, my performance as a podcast host is enough to uh, merit uh, you know, Fangraphs keeping me on for the foreseeable future, and he responds to that question as well. I guess this is an issue that's up for debate. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. That's all right. You know, that's fine. Well, looks, Does well, it sound any better than when I used to use my phone? Yes. Okay. Because yeah. this cost like $200 or something. If it didn't well, sound any better, that would be silly. It would be silly. Yeah, it would be silly. Um, but yeah, it's just, you're also just, I'm just accustomed, acclimating to the fact that you have a silly voice. It's no big deal. Um, you know, here you are back. Uh, I, I'm going to assume, Dave Cameron, that you, you did not necessarily – it seems as though I, – so I read through your chat. It seems as though that if you didn't – even if you did not necessarily consume a lot of baseball, you at least have this, this, some of the general principles still down. Yeah, I mean, I still check the scores every day. It's not like I just, you know, was like, but I'm not going to pay any attention to baseball whatsoever. I paid a lot less attention to baseball and did other things. But, I mean, I still noticed, like, you know, hey, the Twins are winning and, uh, you know – Giancarlo Stanton's hitting the ball far, and, you know, uh, Jesse Chavez is pitching well. I mean, you know, Jason Kipnis doesn't make outs anymore. Like, you know, I still noticed things that were going on, just yeah. not as many of them, probably. Yeah. Actually, here's a, here, this is a simple-minded question, but so are many of the ones I ask you. Uh, like, what is your strategy for monitoring those sorts of things? I mean, is it a question of, of, um, shuffling through leaderboards? Do you, like, do you watch MLB.com's fast cast? What's your, like, if you're looking, for as much as much information about essentially like the current state of things in the game, what is your strategy for for digesting that in the shortest amount of time? 
So usually instead of like trying to catch up on stuff that I missed, I mean, I do browse the leaderboards, but I generally try and just kind of keep an eye out on the scores every day. It's like when games are happening, I have the bad app on my phone and I, you know, check and see what's going on every couple of innings and say, okay, you know, I know who the pitchers are today and I know which teams are playing and it's 2 nothing in the third inning and then, you know, it's 5-3 to three in the sixth inning and then, oh, this team won 6-5, to five, their closer must have blown a save or something and look at the box score. And then I'll watch, you know, probably um, a couple of innings of, of different games. So I probably watch between, I don't know, six and 12 innings a day, but not of one game necessarily. It'll be a few innings here, a few innings there. Um, and so uh, I will look at the leaderboards basically every day, uh, but it's not so much trying to figure out what happened the night before as much as it is, like, quantifying what I kind of, like, I saw, okay, Jesse Chavez pitched pretty well yesterday, but I don't know exactly what his numbers were. So I might look at it and say, okay, you know, what is what is his game log look like or something? But I already knew going in that Jesse Chavez pitched well yesterday. Right, right, and so and and that's how you do it. Yeah, I guess that uh, I was actually yesterday watching um, some college baseball because the college, okay. uh, the NCAA baseball tournament's going on. It is. Yeah, and uh, I I'll be honest, I've never watched this round before. We are in the regional uh, round, the regional segment of the NCAA baseball tournament, and what happens is each one of these regionals, I guess there are eight of them, sixteen. No, there's six, sixteen of them. Uh, each one produces a winner. Each one is a is a double elimination tournament featuring four teams, and so the, they will have a round of sixteen when they're all over. Okay, I think that makes. I think that's what I'm trying to say. And uh, I never watched the segment, but actually, it can get pretty exciting because you have so many. Not unlike the uh, first couple days of the NCAA basketball tournament, you have so many games going on at the same time. Right. Uh, basketball or you know baseball, of course, is not played at the same sort of. Um, um, tempo. Tempo, right. It's not at the same pace and you don't, you know, you don't, so, so things unfold differently, but you, you still find yourself going back and forth. And there was a, um, they have a, uh, a channel that they sort of, um, I guess it's ESPN and NCAA together, uh, have together in, you know, conjunction with each other, uh, that's called Bases Loaded that brings you, I, I guess, to the highest leverage moments in and out. Not, not unlike NFL Red Zone. Right. Yeah. What would did be it, your so did it just stay on that twenty inning game for like the last ten innings? I don't know. I don't know. Wait, was there one last night? Was yeah, twenty Rice and somebody played a twenty inning game. Right? Oh, did they play that long? Wait, Rice, Rice. Yeah, yeah Rice. That makes it, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they ended up playing twenty innings. And I think the the jokes that I saw on Twitter this morning were that the Rice starting pitcher threw all the pitches, right? Because that Rice is notorious for like destroying the arms of their pitchers. Yeah. Well, there was one uh, pitcher I I'd seen. There was some comments. I forget with uh, what school, but it, I feel like it was a Texas school who had thrown. He had already had Tommy John surgery, and he threw over 130 pitches in his start yesterday. Yeah, he threw like 140 something. He had Tommy John two years ago. Yeah, and that was the rice. That was a rice kid. Uh, I think that was a different kid. Might have been a different kid. Yeah, but I anyway, the, I don't. I didn't look. I haven't seen the box score for the rice game, but I would assume. A lot of people threw a lot of pitches in a 20 inning game in the race game. Yeah, right. But it's you just yeah you're you're hurting people's futures when you do that. Yeah. Um, so it's just a it's a huge bummer is what it is. I will say a lot of kids playing college baseball probably don't have a future. Like this is their present. You know, like we talk about uh, some ty- some teams, especially you know at the trade deadline, this becomes a very popular discussion of how you weight present value versus future value. And some teams it makes a lot of sense to give up you know, big chunks of your farm system and like a go-for-it kind of trade 
if you are, you know, a moderately talented college player who has, you know, maybe at best a low minors pro career and maybe not even that, uh, you probably don't care how many pitches you throw and if your arm blows up because this is it for you. Like you're, you're essentially a franchise that's about to be contracted and you don't put, put much weight on what your arm's gonna be able to do in 10 years. Uh, so it can be a rational decision for a lot of these kids to just go out there and pitch until their arm falls off. The problem comes when guys who have really strong, promising pro careers are forced to do that, even if they might not want to. Yeah, and also there's probably some correlation between pitchers who are more talented and also pitchers that coaches would want to throw more pitches. Yeah, generally, you're not going to ask your worst pitcher to throw 200 pitches a day. But, right. you know, there are guys in college who are very good college pitchers and won't be anything in the major leagues. Uh, and, it, you know, maybe it's not a big deal if one of them throws 150 pitches because – they're pro- this is probably the you know the pinnacle of their athletic career. Right. Uh, the pitcher was Kyle Dowdy, I believe, who pitches for Houston. Okay. Does that sound familiar? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, I found it. I like. I liked watching. I liked watching the, to go back and forth between the games. That was. Uh, but, and I guess that what the MLB Network has a similar program, don't they? Where they're sort of like each night they'll they'll have look-ins, live look-ins, whip whip around coverage. I think it's it's called. Yeah, MLB whip around. I don't actually have cable, so I don't get MLB network, but I see people talking about it on Twitter, so I believe that it's a thing that exists. Whip, whip, you accept the terminology whip around? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen MLB network promoting the whip around before. Actually, that might be a Fox thing. I feel like, I feel like maybe the whip around gets discussed by like CJ Mikowski, maybe? Yeah, okay. And he works for Fox, not MLB network. Oh yeah, right. The, uh, is that, was that originally the province of NFL Network the, the, with the Red Zone. Yeah, I think they were the, probably the first ones who who did it. Mainly because you know all, almost all the NFL games happen at the same time, or at least half of them, right? There's the one o'clock games and four o'clock games. Right. Uh, or in baseball, it's a little uh, you know uh, not as concentrated where the entire week of games is happening at once. Like in baseball, you know you have every team playing every day, and you could watch one team one day and watch another team another day, and it's not the end of the world. Versus in football, you know one-sixteenth of the season is all happening at, at concurrently for every team. Yeah, yeah. A lot going on. Uh, okay. Let's ask you... Well, you wrote about the Twins today. Shall we start there? Sure. You... <clears throat> um, the Twins are doing well. Uh, the Twins are winning games. The Twins are... Right. Do, uh, the Twins have done well yeah, in terms the, of in terms of wins. The Twins have racked up 30 wins in 49 games. Right. And uh, now they are unexpectedly seated at... Uh, unexpectedly... Uh, seated atop, at least by half game, of the AL Central. Yeah, they have the best record in the American League. Not just winning their own division. They have the best the best record of any team in the American League. Second best record in baseball. Okay, uh, so first, how did it? How has it happened? Uh, sequencing, okay. I think, is the short answer. They have strung together all of their positive events. Uh, so when they get guys on base, they get hits, and they turn these few guys they get on base into runs, and they have not let their opponents do the same. So they've not stranded any of their own runners, and they've stranded a lot of the runners that their opponents have put on. Right, and uh, and now that's that would be. Uh, let's see. I guess are you are you willing to call that luck as well? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think it doesn't necessarily. It's not necessarily luck in the way you think of it. Like a ball uh, hits a pebble and bounces over a fielder's head, and you're like, well, that was you know just good fortune. I mean, you know, these guys were doing things. Like maybe they're putting good swings on the ball and they just happen to be, you know, uh, throwing good pitches in certain counts. So it's not luck in the, you know, that the outcome wasn't necessarily deserved based on what they did, but it's absolutely unsustainable. Like there's no way that this 
kind of thing can keep going, keep happening going forward. They don't have a sequencing skill that is being, you know, demonstrated. They're just happening to play well, uh, at the very most important times. Right. Which is good to, again, a good thing to have done. Yeah, it helps a lot. Right. But the only way to guarantee that you'll do that in the future is by having a good team. Yeah. Right. Ta- ta- talent sustains sequencing. Right. And um, and it would appear as though, um, at least given the information that we have about the players uh, currently rostered on the on Minnesota, their chances of, as you've noted, of maintaining this are not they're not great. Uh, in fact, they appear to be uh, among all teams in the AL Central, including the White Sox, who are in last place in that division. They have the lowest projected rest of season winning percentage. Uh, in fact, just as you have noted that they have the currently the highest winning percentage among all teams, uh, they actually have the lowest rest of season winning percentage, projected winning percentage. Yeah, this, is, this is not a good team. Yeah. They've, they've had a good uh, win loss record for two months, but this is still a bad baseball team. Eduardo Escobar is their starting left fielder. Like they've given a lot of bats to Jordan Schaefer. I mean, there's just a lot of you know uh, not major league talent playing significant roles for them. Uh, you know, their pitching staff is not good. They're, you know, outside of Glenn Perkins, the bullpen is bad. Like, this is, this is just a bad baseball team who's won 30 out of 49 games. Right. And, uh, now of course, uh, last year, I don't think the Royals had uh, done, had done quite as well at this point, but the, uh, you said that they, you famously, I don't know about famously, but memorably, Dave Cameron, you suggested that they, uh, what, was it trading James Shields? Was that the idea? Yeah, that was written 10 days before the trade deadline. So even closer to, the July 31st <laughs> arc, I said, the Royals are done. And then they, they played like 700 ball the rest of the year. <laughs> and, have, and, have, and have played pretty decent baseball yeah, uh, right. for the majority of this season. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I, I think that in your post uh, regarding the Twins and uh, the, what they ought to do from here, what they can do from here, um, you're careful to note. You're careful to note that things happen. Um, but things are not things. Positive things are not likely to continue keep, uh, keep happening for this Twins team. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, even diehard Twins fans probably know this is a great team. I mean, you look at this lineup, you look at the pitching staff. Like, no one thought this was a contender going into the season. This wasn't like a controversial statement to be like, yeah, this team's not very good. And I think people generally understand that you know, winning a lot of games the way the Twins are winning them isn't going to last. So this isn't necessarily a case where. You know, uh, we're just saying, oh, okay, the projections don't think these guys are very good, but they're hitting really well, uh, which can be a harder sell. I mean, if you see a guy hitting 400 and someone tells you that guy's not very good, that, you know, you might disagree with them. But if you see a guy hitting 215 and say he's not very good, uh, but they keep winning with all these 250 hitters, you're like, yeah, this probably can't last. Um, so I think, you know, it's not a controversial statement to say that the Twins are going to regress. But the interesting thing is because the American League is just garbage from top to bottom, basically, uh, this is the worst league I've seen in all of watching baseball. There's no good teams in the American League. Uh, the Twins, with an 11, 11 games over 500 through two months of the season, they could regress to the mean and still end up as like a potential wild card team at 80 to 82 wins somewhere in there. Uh, you know, because there just aren't enough contenders in the American League. Probably the five or six best teams in baseball all play in the National League right now. Uh, so the Twins kind of have to figure out, like, okay, how willing are we to bet on a team that's not very good, that we realize is not very good, simply because there's an open door that no one wants to seem to go through. And then where do you, in terms of talent they might give up, uh, moves they might make, what do you think would be sort of a range of, of options that would make sense for a club in their in their place? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I touched on it briefly in the article. I didn't want to get into too much trade speculation, but I, you know, there's no reason that the Twins should trade Miguel Sano or Byron Buxton or Jose Barrios. Like, they're top tier of talent. They need these guys. Like, you know, that doesn't mean they're all going to succeed, but if you keep four of them or five of them, you might get one or two good core players going forward, and they need those core players. So all those guys should not be going anywhere. Those should still be, uh, you know, players they're building around for the future and not trade chips to try and make 2015 better. So if you take those guys off the table and say, you know, maybe we're looking at trading low minors guys who are, you know, years away, or maybe, you know, maybe an Alex Meyer. Maybe, you know, he struggled in AAA, they just converted him to the bullpen. This might be a guy that another team looks at and says, you know, we think we can fix something mechanically. There's some upside here. We'll give you something. When, in the Twins' case, he's probably just a reliever, and relievers aren't that hard to find. So it's not a super valuable asset. You say, okay, fine, we'll give you Alex Meyer, and you give us, you know, a capable number five starter and a major league left fielder and, you know, uh, maybe a a decent utility infielder or something. And you upgrade a few spots on the team, and it doesn't cost you something. It's going to be a huge part of your core. Yeah, I noticed uh, during your chat, I don't know if uh, there was actually any trade speculation related to Jace Peterson, but you took an opportunity to say that you thought that Jace Peterson was not good. Well, there was a question asked uh, by someone who I'm 99% sure is an Orioles fan, asking whether the Orioles could trade uh, Wei-Yin Chen and either Dylan Bundy or Kevin Gaussman, one of the two, uh, for Jock Peterson, which, uh, you know, not not a good trade for the Dodgers. But Jock Peterson and Jace Peterson have close enough names that I, I figured that I would make a joke at Jace Peterson's expense. Yeah, yeah. all right, that's fine. That's uh, yeah, it's good. If that makes you happy, Dave Cameron, put other people down, especially uh, guys who are putting up. Hey, but you know, it's, it's not. Yeah, I like how you just put it. Guys who are putting up. Oh wait, he's putting up terrible numbers. I no, he's not. Thing. He's he's already been worth a win this season. He's got okay. a ninety WRC plus. All right, he he was like seventy five like a week ago, so yeah. he must have had a good week while. Yeah, maybe he did have a good week while. Maybe it was because you were gone. That's right. If I go on vacation, Jace Peterson will not suck. Um, the uh, so. All right, so that's that's sort of the, the the twins range. Now, in terms of the what you know about the front office, which is it is it Terry Ryan again? Terry yeah, Ryan Ter- again. Terry Ryan's the GM. Yeah. Terry Ryan. Uh, I don't know if it's Terry Ryan specific. Terry Ryan and others, assorted others who are, work with him in the front office. I don't know. Given what you know about this front office, do you do, is there any information there that would help you to guess at the sort of moves that they'd be likely to make? Well, I think if we're going to guess that they're going to trade for a pitcher, it's probably going to be a guy who throws strikes and doesn't strike anybody out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think if we're going to look at it and say, you know, what kind of pitchers would they be likely to go after, you're probably not looking at Cole Hamels or Johnny Cueto. They, like, they shouldn't be in on those guys. I think that they are probably smart enough to know that they shouldn't be in on those guys. They shouldn't be trying to bid out the Dodgers and, you know, all the other contenders who are going to be going hard after the best players in the market. So maybe they call about Mike Leak, who's a very much twin-style pitcher and as a free agent at the end of the year and isn't pitching well enough to command a huge return. Uh, or maybe they call about Kyle Loach, right? Like the Kyle Loach is uh, pitching very poorly for the Brewers, but has had success previously, including in Minnesota, came up through the Twins organization, is absolutely their kind of pitcher. Um, so I, w- I would imagine if, that, if they decide to buy, that's kind of more the direction they go. Um, really, they should probably be looking for uh, multiple pieces, like, you know, just trading for Mike Leach and Kyle Loesch isn't going to do anything for the Twins. If they really want to make a run at this thing, they need, like, five players, or, you know, three at least. Um, so maybe you go call the Reds about Leak and Marlon Bird, or you talk to the Brewers and say, 
uh, you know, not that the Brewers are overflowing with good players, but they say, okay, we'll take uh, Aramis Ramirez and Kyle Loach and, you know, uh, some random outfielder that you have that you can spare. Not that the Brewers have a great outfield, but maybe Gerardo Parra or something. Like, you know, they need multiple pieces. Yeah. So, you know, not, uh, not very promising there. Yeah. Kyle, uh, Kyle Loach, though, would, yeah, uh, would be, uh, that, that seems to make sense. Or, uh, Mike Leake, you mentioned. What, what happened with Mike Leake? What happened when he's with the Reds? He's with the Reds. He's a free agent at the end of the year. They will not be resigning him, most likely. Yeah. Uh, and he's not pitching very well. I think he's giving up like 1.7 homer per nine. Yeah. Uh, and he stopped striking guys out, which is not a good combination. Not a good combination, yeah. Um, well, all right. You know, you just mentioned home runs uh, per nine innings. Uh, you may not have seen it. You were away. But uh, Jeff Semmerman wrote um, a compelling post this past week. Uh, regarding the relationship between between pitcher velocity and uh, I guess certain batted ball types, and he found and I, I maybe, uh, maybe he had articulated I think it, it it was it was a post sort of in the line of um, Mike Fast's uh, lose a tick gain a tick post from uh, several years ago, and but he found that uh, there's a re- there's a pretty strong correlation it turns out uh, between fastball velocity and, and allowing home runs per batted ball. And uh, more than that, because with certain pitchers, and we've discussed this before with the Sabathia cases, the Linscombe cases, you'll see pitchers re, uh, maintain their sort of typical um, expected FIP numbers, but where, whereas their fielding, independent pitching, and their ERAs uh, um, you know, inflate considerably. And it, yeah. th- there does appear to be a pretty uh, a tie there between between velocity and, and home run allowance. Yeah, I wonder if this is a little bit of a chicken and egg thing where what we're seeing is maybe more of a proxy than in the actual cause. Like, I'm not so sure I buy into the fact that throwing harder will limit your home run allowance, but I do think that guys who throw harder are more likely to pitch at the top of the strike zone, which, um, you know, had a really good piece with Chris Young last year. Uh, Chris Young, who throws, you know, 85 miles an hour and doesn't give up any home runs, uh, has kind of pointed out there's a sliver of the top of the strike zone that if you can pitch there, uh, you can really uh, avoid home run allowance, uh, avoid home runs despite pitching up in the zone because it's very hard to make contact at the slice right at the top of the zone. If you have really good command, you can live up there. Jared Weaver's done that, uh, and he throws, what, 82 now? <laughs> uh, but like Matt Cain and Justin Verlander and a lot of these guys who have been uh, low home run to fly ball guys throughout their careers or hard throwers who have kind of pitched in this area. Uh, I think there's probably a selection bias where if you throw 85 and you get to the major leagues, you're probably doing it with really good breaking stuff and really good command and maybe a two-seamer. So we probably don't have that many guys throwing low-velocity pitches at the top of the strike zone. But if there were more Chris Young than Jared Weavers, I wouldn't be surprised if we found that it's really pitching in that location and not throwing hard that is the key to uh, allowing a lower home run to fly ball rate. But when it's the same guy, that, that doesn't that isn't isn't that an argument um, in the favor of like if it's you know if you have Lincecum and the only and the, really the main thing that changes about him is the home run allowance. Yeah, so I think like if you take one guy uh, who pitches a certain way with a certain caliber of stuff, and then you take away that caliber of stuff, uh, you're not necessarily uh, going to see him succeed because he's probably still trying to pitch like he used to when he had that stuff, right? So. I think the point that I'm saying is, so if you had a guy who didn't have that stuff all along, but knew how to pitch, uh, kind of like Jared Weaver does at the top of the zone, hitting the little slice where guys don't hit home runs on fly balls very often, uh, you would see more, 
more of the effect of low velocity, low homer to fly ball guys uh, if they kind of pitched their way to the major leagues that way. If you have a guy who's adjusting away and say, okay, I used to throw 94, now I throw 89, and I'm still trying to pitch like I throw 94, you're probably going to see his home run rate spike because he's not going to have the command uh, necessary to get to the big leagues if he was throwing, you know, 89 all along. Right. Uh, here's a question. You mentioned the sliver at the top of the zone. Do we know, uh, obviously, um, uh, there was a, there were a number of uh, posts at the site last year and probably elsewhere, I don't know. Uh, I think Jeff Sullivan wrote a couple of them regarding Mike Trout and pitches at the top of the zone. Yeah. It appeared to be if you, if you wanted to uh, neutralize Mike Trout, the best way to do that would be to to throw fastballs up in the zone. Of course, many pitchers are told not to do that, and so that's still going to create room for error for the pitchers and is not going to end Mike Trout's career. And it does appear as though, in the meantime, he's figured out how to do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, are there are there, are there actually this? It seems like there would be. Are there hitters that we know of who who actually are high ball hitters? They seem to prefer those pitches and who would maybe do particularly well against these. You know the Chris Youngs who who do target the upper t- uh, the upper part of the zone. I think so. I haven't seen this proven without a shadow of doubt. So this is a little bit speculative, but I think I've seen work showing that a level swing does better at the top of the zone, and the uppercut swing does better at the bottom of the zone, right? So like I think it was Jeremy Koo or Andrew Koo, one of the Koos, uh, who's an A's fan and right wrote for Baseball Prospectus a couple years ago last year, some point wrote the piece on how the A's basically developed a, a lineup that uh, combated these two-seam guys who pitched at the bottom of the zone because they had these uppercut swings, and they were getting under balls that most hitters would get on top of. And so they're essentially the they're following the they're sort of mirroring the path of the ball? Yeah, that, right. Yeah. So if a pitcher's throwing down and you're swinging up, you can still elevate. But if you're if you have a flat level play, swing and you're in the pitches at the bottom of the zone, it's going to be very hard to get underneath the ball and, and get it in the air, which most hitters do better get the ball in the air. So... I think the theory is that if you have a flat level swing, you will do better on pitches up than on pitches down. And if you have an uppercut swing, you'll do better on pitches down than pitches up. I guess that's an advantage, though, for these pitchers who are throwing up in the zone because uh, those batters who have uh, more level swings are probably less likely to create the sort of loft necessary uh, to hit as many home runs. Yeah, if you have a level swing, you're probably not a power hitter. Or if you're a power hitter with a level swing, you're doing something wrong. And I think, you know, we've seen some young hitters come up who, you know, have a lot of raw power and are projected big home run guys, and then they get to the majors, they don't hit for nearly as much power as expected, and they run really high ground ball rates. I think, like, Delvin Young uh, early in his career was, like, a 55 60% ground ball guy, even though he was projected as this big slugger, and it was basically his swing plane was wrong. And you're just not going to hit for power when you're hitting the ball on the ground as often as that. Yeah, Kylie, on a recent edition of the podcast, um, I think he he cited Delman Young as part of this, but he has sort of a working theory that players who have gotten in a lot of reps by a certain age, right? Or it's not necessarily age, it's just it's the quantity of reps. And so you would take someone like Delman Young, who as a as an amateur prospect participated in basically every showcase that was available to him, you know, play was playing roughly year round. He essentially became the hitter he was going to become earlier right. earlier than um you know maybe a, a cold weather a cold weather uh player who who's maybe also a two sport athlete or something like right. that yeah, like, he he made all the adjustments that he could make right yeah yeah and i guess like like will venable for example will venable went to princeton and played basketball right 
And I, probably not shocking that he didn't become himself until like what, 25, 26, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, all right. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting. So, um, and then, oh yeah, and is there anything to this? And perhaps you've answered it by the explanation previously. Um, I was watching, uh, the Columbia Miami game yesterday. Um, not really of any great interest to anyone at the beginning, uh, but it was at the end because Columbia beat Miami. Um, Columbia University, of course, is a, is an Ivy League institution that, that does not offer scholarships, whereas Miami is one of the best baseball schools in the nation. Um, so that's why, that's one way they're different. Uh, Columbia ended up shutting out Miami for the first time all season. One of the commentators, though, made frequent comments about the area in the zone that lefties like to get the ball. And that was the sort of, uh, low and inside area where they can, you know, the, the, the sort of narrative goes, they can drop the bat head on the ball, and that's good. Well, is there any reason to believe that a lefty, because um, I, I would say anecdotally, it wouldn't, it doesn't surprise me necessarily, because maybe it's because I've heard it so many times, but is there any reason to believe that a lefty would prefer a low and inside pitch and a, a, more than, more than a righty? Yeah, not that I can think of. I mean, to me, uh, both hitters should prefer low and in pitches because if you don't get them low enough or in enough, that's a, a really good spot to drive the ball. Um, I don't, I don't know what, I, I've heard the, the saying before, but I don't know what the reasoning would be of why there would be a substantial difference for a left-hander versus a right-hander preferring that low and in pitch. Right. Is it, although maybe here's one possible explanation. I feel as though, What's the rough breakdown of left-handed versus right-handed batters? It's about 55, 45 right-handers. Right, but actual, but how many left-handed throwers are there? Uh, it's like 80, 20 or 85, 15 or something. Right, and so I was thinking, so maybe one possible explanation is that some left-handed batters are actually righties. And maybe there is something about the, like using the lead hand that is somehow favorable to that low and inside spot. Right, so these are the bats, left, throws, rights guys you're talking about. Exactly, right, yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, so I don't think I know enough to have an opinion on that theory, yeah. but it sounds interesting to study. Yeah, well, I'm not going to study it either. Yeah, okay, listeners, go study bats, left, throws, rights, players, and whether they do better on pitches down and in. Then, then what, as a population, then their left hand Then bats, left, throws, left. Because yeah. that's kind of your control group, right? It's like right. these same-handed hitters who are natural lefties. Is Pat Vendite, Vendite, is he allowed in the in the sample anywhere? Well, I think we're looking at hitters, so no. What about Greg Harris? Again, not a hitter. Okay. You just like naming switch pitchers? Yeah, I wonder. What about uh, what about Ricky Henderson? Uh, I don't know if he was a right thrower. No, he wasn't. He was. He's. A, I think he's the most. I think he's the best. Alt, well, he's the best. He's a really good player, anyway. But I think he has all of the offensive, like, uh, accolades of the righty batting, lefty throwing. No, so he was a bats left throws right. He was a bats right throws left. To the right. Ricky Henderson was a right-handed batter. Why are you trying to confuse me with bringing up Ricky Henderson know, when we're talking about rever- left-handed batters? Because he's reverse. Yeah, he's reverse. He- Okay. Yes, Ricky Henderson hit right-handed. Why, why didn't he? Why didn't he bat left-handed? Good question. Yeah. Especially as a speed guy. Yeah, but it doesn't seem to have bothered him at all. Yeah, he seems to have. Done, it worked out okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, let's see. Covered. Uh, covered uh, velocity there with Jeff Zimmerman. 
Uh, dog sprained her tail. We got that. That's important. Uh, oh, yeah. Hey, Jeff Zimmerman. Uh, speaking of Jeff Zimmerman, he published a piece at the Hardball Times that could be very important. Or uh, maybe, maybe, I, maybe. I mean, it's potentially it's worth discovering or worth reading, certainly. Yeah. Uh, the quantity of the, or the magnitude of the impact is probably the question that's up for debate. Right. Well, allow me to summarize it poorly. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Zimmerman wrote a piece regarding the defensive spectrum. Uh, and the um, the defensive adjustments that might uh, might slash ought be included in war uh, wins above replacement. Of course, uh, you know we have had we've used a, for, for calculating war a, a sort of default range of um, defensive adjustments. And work in this case by Zimmerman would appear to suggest that maybe the range is a little bit more compact than um, you know than and at least at Fangraphs we've used for a calculated war over the last like, four or five years. Yeah, so Tom Tango developed kind of the positional adjustments. Uh, he developed a lot of the framework that we use in Winds Above Limit. He specifically developed the exact numbers that we use in the positional adjustments. So we basically just incorporated his positional adjustments when we adopted his framework for Winds Above Replacement. Um, and I think he's got the gap from top to bottom at like 30 runs, right? From catchers like plus 12 and a half and DHs are negative 17 and a half. So it's yeah. A 30-run spread from the far end to the other far end. And I think Zimmerman showed maybe a 25-run spread or a 22-run spread, something like that. Smaller, uh, naturally. And I think most of his uh, argument is that designated hitters specifically are being too heavily penalized, which I know Dan Zimborski in his own models and, and using Zips projections also uses a smaller DH penalty than we do. Um, in Essentially... Uh, a smaller DH positional adjustment of saying that, that DHing is so hard and has such a negative impact on your statistics, your offensive statistics, that we need to give them more credit for the fact that they have to do this thing, uh, that, you know, makes it hard to hit. Um, which I think I buy a little bit. I think there's no question major league teams see DHs as more valuable than we do. I mean, DHs are, uh, if you buy into Fangraph's version of war, DHs are remarkably overpaid. Um, and major league teams continue to pay them uh, dramatic amounts of money, even smart teams. The A's gave Billy Butler $30 million for some reason last winter. And um, when they did that, Eno Saris was postulating that maybe part of the reason was because there aren't that many DHs who can hit. Uh, it <laughs> Billy Butler might also be a DH who can't hit, so it still wasn't a very good investment of $30 million. But there are a lot of teams who are spending money on DHs who are not stupid. And so I think there is something to the idea that major league teams – believe that there is a significant DH penalty that we we aren't entirely accounting for. Um, so, But if, I think if you take that issue out, Jeff's range is not that different from what we're already using. And I think uh, Tom Tango has, has kind of eloquently uh, explained that there's basically one issue that's tricky that will kind of determine what your range is, and that's how you handle uh, players moving from the infield to the outfield. Like within the infield and within the outfield, Jeff's numbers, the relative numbers, are very similar to Tom's. They're not really all that different. The question is how you handle guys, uh, the difference between them, right? Because outfielders generally can't move to the infield, especially left-handed throwing outfielders. They just can't do it. They physically can't play shortstop third base and second base because of the hand they throw with. So inherently, we have this group that is incapable of doing something that the infielders are capable of doing with. So therefore, the infielders have some advantage, right? They can play infield and outfield. The outfielders can only play outfield. If you have two groups that are equal and the infielders can do the outfielders' job and the outfielders can't do the infielders' job, you should give some bonus to the infielders, uh, which I think in Jeff's model 
just version of the positional adjustments wasn't happening. Oh, okay. I guess this is an issue that's up for debate, right? Not to discredit Jeff's numbers, but I don't know that I would buy entirely into the idea that there's no difference between infielders and outfielders. What would be, if there were, if it turned out that, um, you know, further research revealed that the the defensive adjustments that we've been using are maybe too aggressive, that the range is too wide, and that uh, in sort of the platonic reality of it was that they ought to be more narrow. What would what implication would that have for you? I guess not in terms of assessment, but say say you were in charge of a team and you learned this. What how would that affect perhaps the way you you went about looking for players or paying players? Well, I think again, and talking about the magnitude, I think like even if we adopted Jeff's positional adjustments, we're talking about you know a couple of runs a year mm-hmm. for almost everybody. I mean, where you know you're maybe taking a 3.8 win center fielder and making him a four win center fielder, or uh, you know 2.4 win second baseman and making him a 2.1 win second baseman. Like these aren't dramatic shifts. Like this isn't you know war is wrong, stupid, throw it out the window. Uh, Mike Trout's actually not good at baseball. Like this is these are very minor shifts within a you know a kind of a spectrum. Um, I do think the interesting question is probably mostly related to first baseman and designated hitters who are um, penalized very heavily for not providing any kind of defensive value. Um, and I think the general baseball fan and you know kind of traditionalist disagrees with that notion and says. They're not paid to play defense. They're paid to hit. They do the best hitters in baseball. We don't really care what kind of defensive value they provide. Where maybe we look at it and say, yeah, but if you didn't have that guy, you could put a really good defensive team on the field, and sure, you you wouldn't have as good a hit, hitters, but you'd make up for it by having elite defenders all over the field. Um, and I think that's kind of the question that you're trying to answer, right, is like how much is the marginal gain by being able to play uh, more good defenders and not have any defensive liabilities um, versus the the marginal gain of having a guy like David Ortiz on your team who's a really good hitter but then forces you to put Manny Ramirez, or Hanley Ramirez. Maybe we should be calling him Manny Ramirez. Hanley Ramirez in left field where he's destroying your pitching staff because he can't play the outfield. Um, I think I tend towards the side that says the defense does matter at all positions and and – I think if someone can prove that it doesn't uh, or it matters less than we think it does, then maybe you'd say, okay, put a big slugging DH, on, you know, at, in left field and and don't worry about it. Um, but I think in the season that the Red Sox are having, this might be a tough year to argue that, you know, the defense doesn't matter and you can stick anyone out there and, it, and it'll go okay. What about the season? That, what do we think about the season the Padres are having? Because they, they have right. sort of uh, attempted this experiment. Yeah, I, I think the teams that are uh, uh, kind of experimenting with l- not good defenders in the outfield are not playing very well. And the Kansas City Royals, who have a lousy rotation, uh, are winning a lot of baseball games because their defense is amazing. Yeah. And uh, Right, so I think that the evidence this year and in most years kind of goes contrary to this idea that defense isn't really all that important. Hmm. Yeah, the... Uh... Right, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, when you do just have the Royals having won the World not they didn't win the World Series, but they made the World Series unexpectedly. Of course, they have a very good defense to continue to. The Padres, I don't know. Do we think that the, the, the their record right now? Well, let's talk about their base runs because that's the way to, that's the way to think about it. Um, what uh, this is? Uh, I'm, t- I'm looking it up right now. Stop. I think they're third worst, fourth worst. 
They're oh. down toward the bottom. I think their base runs record is like 21 and 29 or something. Yeah, fourth. Yeah, fourth worst. Twenty-one and twenty-one and thirty-one as of this yeah, point. There you go. So that's that's not very good. Yeah, and there. I mean, you know, I think they're closer to five hundred by actual record, but uh, again, that's probably mostly sequencing. And yeah, and how did how did uh, how does this compare to last year's edition of the Brewers? I forget. The Brewers or the Padres? Oh, sorry, the the Padres. Uh, I think last year the Padres were better than this by base runs. Not great, but I think they were just a little below five hundred. And is there any reason to think the team that went extreme towards the offensive side that they would be able to outplay base runs somehow. No, right. I mean, I think I've looked at this historically and tried to find, like, is there a, uh, of the teams that out outperform base runs, and there certainly are a lot of them, as you'd expect in any large, you know, if you get a whole bunch of teams together and you're going to get some who are going to perform different from expectations, but, and the teams who have uh, generally outperformed, there's not any bias towards offense versus defense or starting pitching towards uh, relief pitching, it, it just basically seems to be a handful of teams who all had very good runs for a year and then regressed right back the next year. Yeah. The, the, I mean, a notable one was the Oriole, recent Orioles team, right? Yeah. And, the, and then they bounced back and did it again last year. I mean, they had two out of three years where they outbeat, they outperformed their base runs expectations, and Orioles fans yelled at us and said, your model is stupid. And we said, well, you know, we'll see. And this year the Orioles are underperforming their base runs expectations. So, you know, it, I it, well, that doesn't mean we're not stupid, though. Doesn't mean we're not stupid. We could very well be stupid. And in the future, I'm imagining we'll come up with a better model. Base runs is not perfect. Uh, but it's probably better than assuming that every team who wins more games than their expectation has figured out, you know, the magic key. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, you've uh, fulfilled your obligation, Dave Cameron. Hooray. All right. Uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, I'm glad you had a nice week away. I am glad I had that as well. Okay. That is Dave Cameron. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.